0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, maybe also Romans 1. We're going to begin a study in the book of Acts. I'm not sure uh, how far we'll get, probably a number of months. Then we'll stop and do something else and come back, because I'm guessing that'll be about 60 or 70 sermons through Acts. So we'll probably do it in about two or three sections. But today we'll start in Acts 1. One to eight. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father God, we so value our freedom. We are blessed to be free and we're thankful for it. Father, we think of those in the Ukraine, a sovereign nation, ruthlessly. Violently, maliciously attacked by a totalitarian dictator, Vladimir Putin. We ask, Father, that you would protect the sovereignty of Ukraine, that you would protect the many innocents that are in the direction of missiles and bullets. We ask, Father, that the fighting would soon end, that the sovereignty of Ukraine would be restored, that Putin would be brought to justice as an evil, violent dictator. Father, we ask that you would protect the church in the Ukraine and even allow it to grow As desperation sets in and the need for hope, salvation through the shed blood and the resurrection of your son, let that message go forth. And Father, for those of us who have freedom, may we not waste our freedom, may we utilize it well. May we be involved in kingdom endeavors, not wasting our lives. Father, guide us, empower us by your spirit to do kingdom work. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. A few years ago, I was in upstate New York, Syracuse, where a lot of my childhood took place. I ran into a friend of mine, his name is George. George said, Jeff, I wanna tell you a true account, a true story. I said, lay it on me. He said, I received a call from one of my buddies. And my buddy said, I know this guy named Joe, he's just retired, he is totally bored. Will you take Joe out golfing? George said, sure. George had never met Joe. Joe had never met George. But George called Joe up, invited him golfing. They met on the first tee box. Almost immediately, George said, I have an overwhelming draw by the Holy Spirit, a prompting that I needed to share the gospel with Joe. Joe. And I resisted. I'm here to golf, God. Come on. But that prompting grew and finally I could take it no more. And so I began to share the gospel. I said, Joe, you and I are sinners in need of a savior. Sin is any attitude or action, thought, motive, inactivity. Anything that is not within the perfect will of God is Sin. And because of sin, we need a savior or we will spend eternity in hell, separated from God. But God in his great mercy, willed that his willing son, Jesus, fully God, the second member of the Trinity, take on full humanity while giving up deity, living here on earth for 32, 33 years, never sinning, always a perfect existence, went to the cross because the wages of sin is death. He was covered with our sin on the cross. He died, even being alienated from the Father because of our sin. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again, conquered death. But if by faith you would believe in Christ, receive him, And begin to turn from sin, repent. He would give eternal life. George said it took three holes to get through the gospel. And he had terrible scores on all three. So he thought what would happen, of course, God's spirit had prompted him. He had given up three holes. The heavens would separate. A double rainbow would be in the sky. Joe would hit the ground and beg to receive Jesus. But Joe just looked at him, didn't say a word, and said, I have honors, and teed off. And George was disappointed. Four days later, George received a phone call from Joe's wife. Joe's wife said, We've never met, but my husband died last night, and I want you to be a pallbearer in his funeral. And George said, well, I only knew your husband for one round of golf. Yeah, she said, but what a round? When my husband got home, all he talked about was Jesus. He actually made us get on the ground. And both of us prayed to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and we asked for forgiveness. And now my husband is dead, but he is alive. He's in heaven and I want you to be a pallbearer at the funeral. George said to me, Jeff, what if I had resisted that? What if I had resisted the prompting of God's spirit and I had not been used in that way? I wouldn't have the joy of knowing that the eternity of a husband and wife and maybe future generations, I had a part, a small part in that. What joy I have. Maybe you've had those kind of situations. And even now, you can think of how God has used you to lead someone to Christ and what a joy that is. I think of Beverly. Beverly had only been to church once or twice, but she fell ill, and I don't think I'd ever met Beverly, but I was called to visit her in the hospital. I walked into the room and I had this overwhelming sense share the gospel with Beverly. And so I took the time to share the gospel, and she wasn't like Joe. I could barely finish the gospel before she was like, Yes, I need that. Yes, I'll pray. Yes, I'll receive it. I'll receive Jesus. That doesn't happen very often, does it? But it happened that day, and I left, and Beverly died. Her husband called me up. He had never been to church. i had never met him. He said, would you do Beverly's funeral? I said, it would be my honor. It was to be at a funeral home, not in the church. And when I arrived, I realized I was the only one that came in a cage, a car. Everyone else came on their Harley bikes. The parking lot was alive, let me tell you. Everybody had full sleeves. They were decorated, a lot of tats. I looked kind of bare and empty. And they all thought it was BYOB, bring your own booze, and they were boozing. In fact, by the time the service began, I'm pretty sure that the funeral director and I were the only sober persons in the building. I'm not exaggerating. That's really true. And the service wasn't going very well. They thought B-Y-O-B also meant indoors, not just outdoors. And then I talked about Beverly's deathbed conversion. And you could have heard a pin drop. Not a word, no one drinking, nobody talking, nobody whispering. They were glued that she had accepted Christ. And then gone home to glory. I'd love to tell you that everyone walked the aisle. Just as I am played. I laid my hands on all of them. They were slayed in the spirit. I'd love to tell you that. It's not really what happened. I don't know where any of those people are. But I believe. Maybe I'm wrong. I believe I, when I get to heaven. Someone with two full sleeves and a few other tats is going to walk up. And they're going to say, I was there that day when you talked about Beverly. And I prayed to receive Christ like Beverly. I might be wrong. But I think that's what the Holy Spirit likely did. When we talk about the book of Acts, we sometimes say it's the Acts of the Apostles. I think it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's what the book is about. And I want to pick up... And talk in verses 1 to 3 at the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this work throughout. Acts 1, 1 to 3. In the first book. You see, Acts is really a compendium. We count Scripture as 66 books. 39 Old Testament. 27 New Testament. That's how it's divided for us. That's not really how it was always divided. For instance, Ezra and Nehemiah was one book and now it's two. Luke-Acts was really two parts of one work. So when he refers to the first book, he's referring to Luke because Luke was led by God's Spirit to pen the gospel of Luke and Acts, the early church. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, as you and I begin, we're introduced to a man named Theophilus. In Luke and in Acts, he's called most excellent, Christate. Most excellent doesn't refer to his character, it doesn't refer to his personality or traits. It refers to his status in Roman society. He's at the top of the food chain. The very top is the senatorial class. The second class is the equestrian class. The cristate. that's who he is. This is telling us that Theophilus is a powerful man, a rich man, a mover and shaker in society. Many believe, and I concur, that Theophilus almost certainly underwrote the works of Luke Acts. Luke is a doctor, a medical professional, but he tells us in the Gospel of Luke that he went to write an orderly account and he did research, which means he traveled all over the Mediterranean. He set his job aside and he did research to write Luke and Acts. And unlike the research that you and I do, his was perfect as God's spirit carried him along, 1 Peter 1.21, to record the exact words that God intends. And while he's doing that, it appears that Theophilus is underwriting his travels and his work because he's away from his job, Someone needs to provide for him. And in the providence of God, the Lord raised up Theophilus, this most excellent, this man from the equestrian class. And a question that is often asked is this, is Theophilus a believer in Jesus? And I don't know the answer. And nobody really does, but we do see the following in Luke 1:4 that you, Theophilus, may have certainty about the things you have been taught. In other words, when Luke commands us to be witnesses, when you have the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, he's going to model it. He models it through the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He's got this man, Theophilus, of the equestrian class, and he's actually writing a gospel and an early church history in order that Theophilus may have certainty about this Christ that Luke has told him about. He's modeling how you and I need to reach out to others with the gospel. And so he tells us in verses one to three about Jesus, That he came to earth, that he suffered for us, took on our sin, that he died, was buried, then rose again, and he remained on earth for 40 more days. Now, by the time we get to Acts 1.11, he's going to ascend. And the time period from Acts 1.11, really from Acts 1.1, because it's just about the same time period, from Acts 1.1 to Pentecost... Fifty days after the ascension is ten days. So the period of time from Acts 1 1 to the last part of Acts 2 is 10 days. We call it the upper room. It's a time period according to verses 4 and 5 and verse 14. 10 day period of time in which God says, Don't go out, don't minister, just pray. Just prepare your hearts. Ask God's Spirit to empower you that you might do great things for the kingdom. Let me read verses four and five. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait 10 days for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we could really move through verses four and five rather quickly, and we'd miss something astounding. Think about the 12 disciples. What have they done for the last three and a half years? They've walked with a peripatetic rabbi. Peripatetic means a rabbi who walks from place to place. That's Jesus they've been with Jesus for three and a half years. You and I read about the miracles they saw them. You remember what John says at the end of the gospel, John 21. He says, if all the miracles of Jesus had been recorded, I suppose not all the books on earth could contain them. So we read a small fraction of the miracles of Christ. They saw them. We read a small fraction of what Jesus said, maybe the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5 to 7, and a few other passages, we read a tiny amount of what Jesus actually taught and they heard it firsthand. Now, if you had seen all those miracles, you had orthodoxy, right thinking, and you had seen how he ministers, orthopraxy, right action, wouldn't you think that you're ready to be commissioned three and a half years with Jesus. You have all the orthodoxy, the right thinking. You're you're saturated with Bible. You have all the orthopraxy. You're saturated with ministry. Now you're ready to be commissioned. And Jesus said, no, no, you're not. You got two of the three. You don't have the third. You need to pray, verses four and five and verse 14, for 10 days, Because I'm about to baptize you with something far more than water. You're about to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now think about how the Holy Spirit acted in the Old Testament. He came and went. He came and went. He came and went. He never settled on anyone. Now think about Ephesians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is a down payment guaranteeing your future inheritance. He is the down payment who indwells us at the moment in which... You and I accept Jesus Christ as personal Savior. We believe in Christ, receive him as Savior. The Holy Spirit enters into us and he doesn't come and go, come and go. He resides in us. Now, certainly we have Ephesians 5.18 where we ask for more empowering, absolutely, but we have the power within us. The disciples, they had orthodoxy they had orthopraxy, but they had to wait 10 days for what we get at the moment of conversion and never leaves us, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, you're not ready, disciples. You may have been with me for three and a half years. You may have seen the miracles. You may have heard the teachings, but you're not ready because if you do it on your own, it will not work. If you want spiritual significance, if you want kingdom empowerment, it comes from God's spirit. And so he'll say in verse 8, But when you receive power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But I think they got stuck in verses 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not. If you highlight in your Bible or you pen in your Bible, that word not is really big. Evangelicals are really bad at it. It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. A couple of nights ago, Betty Ann and I were having dinner and. I don't really know how the conversation was, but our table was way too close to the table next to us. And this lady said, "Uh, are you a pastor? It's what every pastor wants in the middle of dinner. (laughs) I said, yeah. She said, can I ask you a question? A question. That sounds like one, doesn't it? (laughs) So she asked me her first question, which led into others. She said, pastor, are we in the end times? we've all asked that question I and mean, that's like that's dinner talk right <laughs> steak is getting cold <laughs> actually it wasn't steak but it was still getting cold are we in the end times it's a great question every generation has thought we're in the end times every generation And I'm committed to my theological end-time view. I am unabashedly, unashamedly, pre-trib, pre-millennial. I think that's the best way to synthesize scripture. But I don't wanna get stuck in my end-time views to the detriment of my now responsibilities. And I think that's what's going on with the disciples. Remember, the first volume is Luke. In Luke 22, Jesus said to the disciples, the 12, when I come into my kingdom, what are they asking? When are you coming into your kingdom? Jesus said, when I come into my kingdom, you will have 12 tribes. Excuse me, 12 thrones. Forget about the tribes. They want the thrones. You're gonna have 12 thrones. And how do they respond? Mark 9 and 10. They're arguing over which throne is closest to Jesus. They're stuck on that. They're stuck on all of their charts and their views of the end times. Nothing wrong with charts. I write them too. But they're stuck there rather than focusing on what we're to do here and the here and now. So Jesus said, "It's it's not your responsibility to figure out when I'm going to return. It's your responsibility to be ready when I return. You've got to be like the virgins who have the oil in the lamp and keep it trim. Not like the virgins who have no oil, no Holy Spirit, who just sing through life and they're not ready for the return of Christ. We want to be ready. Whatever our end time view, Jesus is coming back. We need to be ministering now. Be ready for when he returns. I think of John Getty. John Getty was a missionary in the new Hebrides Islands. Uh, Today it's called Vanuatu. You might know about Vanuatu. Its high point is about five feet above sea level, maybe six. Every time there's a tsunami or any kind of uh, huge wave action in the South Pacific, it's possible that Vanuatu will be gone. It's that island that has inhabitants and there really are no high points for it. Well, John Getty, a Scotsman, a Presbyterian, went to the new Hebrides, Vanuatu Island. He arrived there in 1848, left in 1872. And when he left, the following was written. When John Getty arrived in the new Hebrides Islands, there was not one Christ follower. When he left in 1872... There was not one heathen on the island. Now, John Getty does not share my understanding of the end times. Well, he does now. He's in heaven. He got it right now. (laughs) But he did not share my understanding of the end times. But he understood how he was commissioned. He understood how he ought to live in these times. And the text tells us that we will receive power and we will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Power is the Greek word dunamis. Some sometimes say dynamite. It really doesn't mean that. It just means enablement. The enablement of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm I'm not really good with my words Empower me to share the gospel. Lord, I'm too concerned of what others are going to think in our secular society. Empower me to be more concerned with what you think rather than what they think. Empower me to be a witness. That's what the word dunamis means. To be a witness, which not only is our actions, but it's also what we say. And he tells us to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We have all of these ourselves. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is our homogenous group. Homo means same. Homogenous milk means uniform milk, right? So our homogenous group is those who are like us. Those who look like us, talk like us. Have maybe the same careers, the same education levels, the same recreational pursuits. That's our homogenous group. And God says, for that group, be a witness. Tell them about Jesus. That's a tough group, right? Because those who are most like us, that we spend the most time with, they know what we like. They know what we're about. If we use salty language, they've heard it. If our priorities are all out of whack, they've seen it. And the Lord is not saying, be my witness when you have your life all together, when you're angelic. Get that out of your your thought life. You will never be an angel. That's a different being. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, humans who are redeemed will actually judge the fallen angels, right? We're never going to be angels. That's a different being. And God doesn't say Be my witnesses when you finally have it all together. In fact, you can say something like this. You know what I'm really like. That's why I need Jesus. And by the way, I know what you're really like, which is why you need Jesus. And God says, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. He says, be my witnesses in Judea. Now, that's really interesting because geographically, Jerusalem is part of Judea. But I think he's talking about the area not on the mountain. Jerusalem is on a series of mountains, 2,600 feet above sea level. I think he's talking about the lower part of Judea, which is a desert. It's hot as cinders in the summer, and it's cold in the winter. Oh, not Wausau cold, but it's cold it's unpleasant in temperature. He's saying, go to the unpleasant places, the hard places, and be my witness. What are the hard places? Maybe it's family. Family can be very, very difficult to share the gospel with. Who are you to tell me about Jesus? You self-righteous person. We were raised X, Y, Z, and you've abandoned us. Who are you to tell us about Jesus? That's our Judea. And God says, not only in Jerusalem, the homogeneous group, the people who are like you, but Judea, the tough place where it's difficult to share the gospel, go there. And then Samaria. In about a month, I'll be in Israel. And while I'm there, I'll partner up with a guy named Duran. And we kind of tag team as we teach. And when we cross Samaria, it's every man for himself. Because we don't agree on who Samaritans are. One of us is right and the other is wrong. And so if Duran gets the microphone, I'll stand behind him going... And if I get the microphone, he'll be like, Americans. Well, the problem is, he gives the sanitized Jewish understanding of Samaritans. There's actually no historical evidence that he's right. He'll tell you that the Samaritans are part of the northern 10 tribes that disappeared in 722, particularly the tribe of Ephraim, but that's not who the Samaritans are. He's got the date right at 722, and in 722, a madman like Vladimir Putin, his name was Sennacherib, an Assyrian, Invaded the 10 northern tribes because Israel, those 10 northern tribes, had been disobedient for several hundred years. So God allowed Assyria to come in. But the Assyrians didn't all go back to their land. Many of the soldiers stayed in the 10 northern tribes and they intermarried with Jewish women. And now we have a new breed half Assyrian, half Jew that's where we get the Samaritans. Now go forward to 586. That's when the two southern tribes are carried away into captivity by Babylon. They're gone for 70 years, but they refuse to intermarry with the Babylonians. And when they come back, they are pure. They have not idolated themselves like the 10 northern tribes. And so when they come back, you have the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is instructed to build the walls around Jerusalem. And you remember a man named Sanballat and other Samaritans want to help. And you remember what Nehemiah says. He says, absolutely not. You cannot. You have adulterated yourself. You are not pure. You will not build the wall around the holy city. And then we have Samaritans who come down to the south to the temple but they're not allowed into the court of women or the court of men and certainly not into the Holy of Holies. And so Jews hate Samaritans and Samaritans hate Jews and Samaritans build a rival temple in Mount Gerizim in the middle of Samaria and Jews actually desecrate the temple in Samaria and Samaritans return the favor around 4 B.C., They do what Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the Seleucid king, had done a hundred years earlier. They took bones, pig bones, and threw them into the Holy of Holies. Pig, pork, Jew, into the Holy of Holies. They desecrated the temple of God. Samaritans hate Jews. Jews hate Samaritans. And Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you are to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, your homogenized group, Judea, the tough area, and the Samaritans, the people you hate. Who do you hate, Christian? Somebody who doesn't vote like you? Someone who doesn't look like you? Someone who's from a different political persuasion. Is that who you hate? Those people who are ruining our country. Whoever those people are. Who do we hate? Well, it's probably different for all of us. It might be a family member. It might be a boss that treated us poorly. It might be somebody of a different nationality. Or a different... Gender, the opposite gender. Who do we hate? God says when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, be a witness not only in the homogenized group, not only in the difficult places, but also to the one that you hate. It's not enough to talk about those people, whoever those people are. We have to love them enough to share the gospel with them. And then he goes on to say, and the ends of the earth. The text doesn't ask the question I'm going to ask, but the question is this what about those who are unevangelized? Those who have never heard? Is it right to condemn someone to hell if they've never heard the name of Jesus? It's not an arbitrary question, Scripture answers it. Let me read from Romans eight, or Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, kat-a-tan-tan, suppress the truth. So those who suppress the truth receive. The wrath of God. Let me go on, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So whatever they're suppressing is not unknown, it is known. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, verse 20, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what are these invisible things? Psalm 19.1 helps us a little bit. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So what's going on is this. God is saying the unevangelized are not condemned to an eternity in hell Because they reject Jesus of whom they have not heard. They are condemned because the truth of God is evident in creation. Natural revelation. Every sunset, every sunrise, every snowflake, every animal, every beach setting, everything cries out that there is an uncreated creator. An uncaused cause. And if a person doesn't suppress that truth, God will reach out. But we're not done with Romans. How about Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles understand the word as unbeliever, for when unbelievers who do not have the law, they don't have any of the law, they don't know anything about scripture, by nature do what the law requires They don't have the law, but they innately do some of the things of the law. Nomas, when it's unmodified, refers to the Ten Commandments. They're obeying the Ten Commandments. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They show, verse 15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflict, thoughts, accuse, or even excuse them. So why is an individual condemned? Because the truth of God is revealed in nature, and yet we suppress that truth. And we believe that there is uncaused causes that are not from God. Then we have the law of God written on our heart. So anthropologists can tell us that every society believes that murder is wrong Adultery is wrong, covetousness is wrong, honoring parents is right, and idolatry is wrong. The first two commandments, have no other God besides me, do not commit idolatry. Nobody is born an atheist, nobody is born an agnostic, nobody is born an idolater, nobody is born a polytheist, but we reject the truth. In creation and what God has written on our hearts, we suppress the truth and we become agnostics and atheists and idolaters and polytheists. And because of that, we are without excuse. What would happen if somebody didn't suppress the truth? We all do, but what if we didn't? Well, there are some across the globe who have suppressed less than others. So there was a University of Chicago study in which a very powerful book about the wind, the spirit, was written, University of Chicago, not expected, in which he documents seven million Muslims who have pursued God and they've had visions of Jesus, or missionaries have inexplicably made it into their villages and they have come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So if someone doesn't suppress, our God will reach out to them. But that's still not all God does. He sends you and me. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, homogenized, Judea, difficult, Samaria, where we want to hate, and the ends of the earth. We play a small part in that at Highland. Many churches play even larger parts. Uh, this calendar year we'll give about $1.1 or $1.2 million to various mission organizations out of a budget a little less than three million. Uh, so a little more than a third of what'll come in will go out to missions. We support about 40 missionaries. Five of them are writing scripture in languages that have never had scripture before. That's amazing stuff. But God expects more. It's not just what we give, it's what we do. And he's called us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it comes through Holy Spirit power that resides in believers who take a risk and do the work of the kingdom like you? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we do want to utilize our lives for kingdom purposes. We don't want to waste our lives. We see that freedom is precious. And it can be fleeting. We pray, Lord, for those in the Ukraine, that you would protect them and give them their freedom back. And for we who have freedom, may we utilize that freedom well for your glory empowered by your spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.